Hello. This is the recording of the 12th edition of my not-at-all-regular Twitter Space Sessions. The reason for their irregularity is finding a convenient time to record it. Our topic this time is sports and fitness, or at least that was the original concept. It seems to have ended up being a, a third running parkruns barefoot, a third I'm no good at sports, and a third this is everything I've watched abroad. We don't seem to have talked about fitness much. Usual disclaimer, be aware this conversation took place over the phone and is then recorded directly from playback on Twitter through my sound editing software Audacity. I'm not sure why, but this edition seems to be a little worse quality than normal. Also, this may be the last of our Twitter Spaces recordings. We're working on finding an alternative due to Twitter itself being a mm, tad unstable at the moment, but we haven't come to a conclusion yet. Certainly, it's the last one we've done, so for the moment, my podcasts will go back to being purely fortnightly, as opposed to having these extracts in alternate weeks. Ah, gotta love chaos. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Oh, there you oh, I thought I didn't know whether my phone was... Um... My volume was working then, but it is. It just took a really very long time to let me switch my microphone on after I had accepted the co-host invitation. Oh, that's a bit annoying. Yeah, but I'm well done that we've got it working. I'm surprised it still is, to be honest. Well, so am I. It did stop working for a bit, but it seems to have started in. You got my DM about yes a more, a more private way of doing this but possibly better quality way of doing this. Yeah. Something we may need to discuss. Yeah, we're woed in about it. Yay, whenever that will be. Um, I was doing some research earlier because I was I edited two of these spaces for future podcasts. And one of the questions I had that's never come up on my normal podcast is, do I edit out the ers, the ums and the ahs? And the answer seemed to be from my internet search, the best way of editing them out is not to do them in the first place. Oh, well, I'm going to struggle with that. <laughs> it's I going... say um a lot. It's Even in my videos, I say um a lot. It's going to be a challenge for me. When I do my normal podcasts, I literally write in the ers and the ums so that I know when I'm reading it, I can err an um without a problem. But for this sort of live radio oh. style, I, I have a bit more difficulty because i can never think ahead that far so we're going to see if i have many many hesitations on this 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 space and then i will let you know especially as we're not very <laughs> fresh on the uh, questions and answers for this one because we worked them out quite some time ago but luckily i think that ums and ahs do just add to the conversational nature of it <laughs> <laughs> yes it makes it seem a bit more real a yeah bit more- fluid because if you edit them all out it just sounds like we're robotic voices and we're yeah. not yeah so we're we're about on half past shall well, we do the let's start from here let us as my uncle says get this show on the road right so for those who don't know who i am i'm victoria pearson you can call me v i'm not really a traveler i'm just here to ask the questions so that the barefoot backpacker isn't talking to themselves because that would sound ever so strange. That is basically the entire my entire podcast these days. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Your contributions to your podcast are quite uh, varied, I think. But I haven't had many contributions to podcasts recently because of the nature of the podcasts that I've done. Yeah, yeah. So some of your podcasts are quite niche. Personal and individual. Yeah. But that is what makes you interesting. Thank you. And so, yeah, so the Barefoot Backpacker, for those who don't know, is a travel blogger who isn't a travel blogger <laughs> and a lifestyle blogger 
who isn't a lifestyle blogger, but they will show you that everywhere is interesting. And they've traveled all around the world with very little luggage and rarely any shoes. And they come on here to talk about their adventures. So our last spaces was all about barefooting, actually. Um, I don't know if you remember because it was many moons ago because reasons. And in that we did mention, if you recall, that you often do run barefoot. And so my obvious question to that is, doesn't that hurt? Uh, it is surprisingly less painful than you might expect. And I mean, in my view, it's also less painful than, you know, simply walking on a surface. I mean, what you've also got to remember is the more you do barefoot, walking, running either, the easier it gets and the less it hurts, uh, especially on most surfaces. The thing is with running is that running is slightly different technique if you're running barefoot to if you're running in shoes. And I think I mentioned it on, well, I did mention it because I remember editing it, on my previous space on barefooting. It's, I described it as kind of like bouncing. So you land on your forefoot more than your heel. So mm. less it's the ground. So by the time your nervous system's noticed, you're kind of two steps further on. It doesn't work on very broken ground. And there's certainly a lot of park runs, especially around here, that I'm not going to run barefoot at because they're a bit knobbly. But I'm certainly more open to running more routes barefoot than I'd be comfortable simply walking on because it's a different vibe. So I'm not, as I say, I'm not touching the ground as heavily and I'm not touching the ground as much. So it's easier to run barefoot than walk barefoot. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, where I used to live in Kirkby and Ashfield, there was a loop of a couple of miles that I regularly run. And it had maybe 50 metres of gravel pass. I could just about comfortably run it barefoot. But if I was having to walk it, then I would use generally the sandals because I just couldn't cope with walking that far on such a surface. But running mm -hmm. it's easier, I think. I suppose, as you were saying about how your foot is placed when you're running, when you're walking, you've got a lot more of the, like, the tender underside of the foot. Yes. exposed but even as i say that i think to myself you've probably not got a tender underside of your feet because you barefoot everywhere <laughs> my feet are actually more ticklish than you might imagine <laughs> moving on <laughs> you mentioned parkrun a second ago we are going to cycle back to that yeah. in just a moment but i want to ask you first if you remember your first barefoot run and what that was like i don't think that I do. I know that when I was a teenager, I certainly experimented with running barefoot on training sessions with my local athletic club. When I met them, the branch of it that I met at were at a, they were in a school field. So it was basically grass track. Um, I know that I said to them, I know that I didn't do any <laughs> actual races barefoot with either the club or the school, but I certainly did some training runs on athletic tracks and grass tracks with both of them. I mean, at some point I must have done my first training run on the roads barefoot, but I have no real recollection of when or where that would have been and also what I also point out is that halfway through my first year at university I kind of stopped I stopped running um and it became something I occasionally did for the next couple of decades I still often walked barefoot but I didn't do any running of any kind for quite a number of years actually uh unless I was you know bored or I needed to catch a bus or I was late for something, which happens more often than I care to admit because time management problems. Maybe HD, lovely. <laughs> Let's not talk about how long it's taken us to do this particular space. <laughs> um, so, park run. Yes. You park run barefoot as well? I 
do before before we go into that actually sorry can you explain for those that don't know what parkrun actually is yes yes um it's basically the way to describe it is that it's an organized casual run in a local park it's worldwide now and i think the first one was in 2006 in bushy which is near watford near london and the idea behind it is in a sense it's well it's twofold it encourages people to get out and do a a walk or a jog or a run it's about 5k it is 5k uh you don't have to run it they're very big certainly at the moment they're very big on the idea of promoting park walk the idea is you know you can get off your couch and do a 5k it's the related to the heart hole principle but also it's encouraging people to get into a community so encouraging people to meet up with other people in a social environment at the same time every week and generally after most park runs certainly the one i go to we have tea and biscuits in a church hall uh, of all posh manner of things that so must be quite difficult for you with the social anxiety I've just done a park run. I'm not, my brain does not kick into gear at that point. Also, what I've tended to find is that um, I don't know if it's just because it's, I'm quite distinctive when I run, but when I go into the church hall afterwards, and I say it's a church hall, it's not a church hall. It's, it's, a, it's a room in a church. I'm calling it a church hall because mm. I don't know what else to call it, but it's yeah. definitely not as extravagant as you think it is. But when I go in there, I, I mean, I, I will get my drink, I'll get some biscuits and I will sit down and people will talk to me. So I don't have to start the conversations. Mm-hmm. I, I can I, I just people just come up to me. And then obviously, because you're doing it every week, then you get to know people. And, yeah. people get to know you. and also, it's not just running. So you'll volunteer as well. So yeah. there are going to be people who are doing things like marshalling the course or timing you or giving you finish tokens or you know making sure that nobody falls over halfway around mm. so you can do both running and volunteer well not at the same time but you can do both running and volunteering so again you've got that community thing developing so you're meeting people and you're yeah, talking and you've all got a shared goal sort of thing yes, absolutely what i find most interesting to think about parkrun though is that when i was a teenager i was a cross-country runner and i was in a school team and reached district level standard and we used to have races at 9am on a Saturday morning. And it was not the most pleasant experience to get up for a nine o'clock race on a Saturday morning in the middle of winter. And if you'd have told me then that many years later I'd still be doing it, I'd probably have glared at you. And <laughs> it's like, you know, sometimes I glare at the marshals halfway around the second hill of lap three of my local parkrun because it's steep. And I just, yeah. they say, well done. And I just want to throttle them because you know <laughs> what I, I think to myself why am i doing this why what what purpose is this serving me so it's fair to say that parkrun means a lot to you then um i guess yes um certainly i mean what i like about it more than anything else i guess is accountability so mm-hmm. you know there's other people taking part it's not just me if i were doing my own training runs which i often do uh sometimes uh, and it was raining, then I might decide to skip it and do something else instead that doesn't involve going out in the rain. Mm. But uh, And that probably won't involve exercise because, hi, have you met me? But the thing is, <laughs> parkrun. So my local parkrun gets cancelled in ice because of hills like it did at the end of last month. But apart from that, it takes place in all weathers, rain, shine, heat wave, cold snap. And I know there's likely going to be like 100 other people regardless of the conditions and that kind of encourages me to get out and join them because it's not it's not me that's organizing it and it's not me that's doing it off my own back it's i don't have to go to parkrun but it helps because there are other people there i get that actually um i'm the same with the pole training although it doesn't make any difference to anyone else in the class if i'm there or not for some reason other people expecting me to be there motivates me to go and when i'm doing the workouts at home very difficult to actually start doing the workout at home yes i mean it's similar to the way that currently i mean i had a slight injury after the last park run but currently i'm providing the accountability for one of my online twitter friends to do 30 days of yoga and she wouldn't have necessarily done it off her own back but because Mm -hmm. she asked me and because i until saturday i was basically doing it at the same time as she was 
Um, but that I am here to poke her to remember to do it gives her the accountability to do it off her own back. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, you just said that you were injured at the last park run. Was that a barefooting related injury? Or... <laughs> no. Um, because of the um, weather conditions at the moment, as in it was about one degree and damp, I was wearing minimalist running shoes that I often wear because otherwise I feel every single pebble on that course. And the injury that I got, I've no idea what it was. It was halfway back home. I started to feel a pain just above my ankle and it hurt for the next few days. It seems to be settling down now. I don't know what it was. I must have just, it was almost like I banged it against something, but I have no memory of banging it against something. So I guess I just... I saw the video of that park run and you were going very fast. It was actually one of my slower runs. Um, <laughs> just so you're just like casually jogging past people that are running as hard as they can. <laughs> there was a lady in front of me in a bright yellow high-vis jacket and I was running with her for most of the second lap and then she burnt me off and finished eventually <laughs> about 20 seconds ahead of me. Oh, gosh. She's in her early 70s. <laughs> so is running in a group more dangerous when you're barefoot like are people likely to tread on you and stuff like that i've never noticed uh, i've never really thought about it i mean kind of in any group setting there's always the danger of bumping into each other but i mean it's rare that you'll have people standing on your toes even when you're wearing shoes i think the biggest danger is tripping over at the start rather than foot-related injuries because you know some mm. parkruns have hundreds of people taking part they'll all be setting off at the same time and some of them the start is actually quite narrow it's one of the reasons why there's a parkrun close to me at pollock country park i've never done it because it's a really popular parkrun with like sort of 300 odd people and the start is really narrow so i've always mm. it, it's partly a case of not wanting to bash people and also partly a case of when you're running in that group of people they're going to be quite slow at the start or quite fast. Either way, they're probably not going to be the same pace you are, and it's just a bit unnerving. And the, the biggest parkrun field I've ever taken part in is at Sheffield, Hillsborough and Bedford. I've had parkruns where there have been about 340 people. For the Hillsborough mm. one, I was barefoot. For the Bedford one, I was in minimalist uh, running shoes because of the nature of the courses. Yeah. So, but I had no problems in either one of them apart from people getting in my way. So how do other park runners react to you barefooting? Do people even notice that sort of thing? Or have you um, ever been told you're not allowed to do it barefoot? I've never been told I'm not allowed to do it barefoot. There was one or two instances at my current park run, Queen's Park run in Glasgow, where I took the view that it was not safe for me to do it barefoot. So I wore the minimalist footwear before the rest race director suggested that it probably wouldn't have been a good idea anyway. But that's because of, I mentioned it on the previous spaces, that's because of tree fall, because of yeah. conkers and stuff and buds. Um, at a park run I did at Belfast, Falls Park, I had a couple of marshals come up to me after the race and insist on a selfie with me because they were impressed by the fact that I was running barefoot and wanted to post proof on their Facebook page that it had happened. <laughs> um, apart from that, um, the few people who do comment, there's not many people comment, but the few people who do tend to be curious, mainly asking either about the terrain, whether my feet were cold, or if it made much difference. No one's ever been negative. Uh, back mm. in Sheffield, when I was running in Sheffield, I wasn't the only barefoot park runner. There were at least four of us across the city, across all the park runs. But weirdly, because there were so many park runs, we tended to do different ones. So I've only ever seen one other barefoot runner once, and that's in 50 park runs. And that was at Sheffield Castle. One of my online friends is also a barefoot runner, and she was there. Uh, Sheffield Castle, incidentally, is a course that's notoriously not flat, a bit like the one I do, which I've recently posted a blog about, actually, Queen's Park Run. Um, mm -hmm. What's really disappointing, in a sense, is that it's also my fastest ever park run. 
So it's weird to think that my quickest ever parkrun time was done barefoot over hills rather than on a flat course in minimalist sandals. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that proves anything about my fitness or whether that proves that I'm actually a better barefoot runner than a footed runner. But who knows? You're barefoot more often than you have some sort of shoes or sandals on, though, aren't you? So it makes sense for you to be faster barefoot because you're more confident barefoot. Like when we I, did our space yeah. about your dyspraxia, you said that you sort of feel a bit more balanced in bare feet. Yes. And less likely to trip and stuff. And so I suppose you can focus on running instead of what's happening with my shoes. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, what helps as well is that it's only a five kilometre course. So even accounting for getting there and getting back, which I mean, Queen's Park is literally just walking because it's that far. Um, but at Sheffield Castle, it usually involved at least one tram. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't add much to the distance that I'm actually doing. So it's not like I'm not like I'm doing a half marathon barefoot, like my friend in mm -hmm. Sheffield who has done a half marathon <laughs> barefoot. Um, so, yeah. Gosh, that must have been painful. Um, so Apparently, apparently um, their then partner, when I met them at Sheffield Castle Parkrun, said that the last time that they'd done a half marathon barefoot, they did get some, they did, ha their feet had started to bleed at one point. So, oh. but, but having I mean, you see that, that in runners with trainers on as well, that they lose yeah. toenails and get blisters and all that sort of thing, which you wouldn't yeah. necessarily get with running barefoot, would you? Uh, no, but some, I've, I've walked the course of the Sheffield half marathon and it's mostly okay but there is a section about six seven miles in that's partly in the peak district and the tarmac on the road is a little bit knobbly mm. so if you've got that for a mile that's going to affect things yeah right so bringing the conversation more towards the travel side of sports and travel right have you ever done a park run in a different country outside of the uk uh, i have not mainly because I've very rarely been to any of the countries that also have parkrun because not, I mean, there's not that many countries that have it. The nearest I came was in New Zealand where I was staying in Hamilton, but the local course was about three miles away. And I thought that was a little bit too far from where I was staying, given that it was, you know, about three degrees Celsius at the time. And it starts at eight in the morning over there. I mean, it starts at, it starts at nine 30 in Scotland. I can do nine 30, nine o'clock in England. Yeah, nine o'clock in England is pushing it, but it's fine. Eight o'clock is just a little bit early. Eight o'clock on a weekend is still night time. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, admittedly, like half past nine on a Saturday morning in the middle of winter is almost night time in the north of Scotland, which is presumably why our parkruns start at 9.30 and not at nine. Mm -hmm. um, I was in Perth in Australia. that has got quite a few, but I, I was busy on the Saturday morning, so I never had the chance. But my other recent trips have been to countries with no park runs or very few. So, no, I've done two in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland doesn't really count as a foreign country, though, because it's still part of the UK. But they're the only mm. overseas ones I've done. I've done both of them in Belfast. Um, <laughs> what, what, I will, what, <laughs> what this does allow me to say, though, is there is such a thing as park run tourism. It's kind of like a side quest. And I mean, one of the aspects to this, because, you know, humans have a nature to tick boxes, is to visit a parkrun beginning with every letter of the alphabet, with the exception of X, because there aren't any. My local parkrun is Queen's Parkrun, and it's one of the three in the UK that begins with a Q. So every week there's a lot of parkrun tourists there. They generally only visit once, partly because Glasgow isn't really near anywhere, but also partly because... It's not exactly the most comfortable of courses to do. Um, there's a couple of YouTubers who video every Scottish parkrun, and they said the first time that they did Queen's Parkrun that it was the toughest in Scotland. There is one near yeah. Glasgow called Drum Chapel. It's on the western edge, and that's very similar, and that's the other contender for the accolade of toughest parkrun in, in Scotland. There's about 55 of them. So that tells you all you need to know about Queen's Park. People come for the queue and never come back. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I'll give that one a swerve. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you if you ever run when you're travelling, but you kind of sort of answered that a little bit, so I'm going to change it a bit. 
a lot of the time when you travel, you're backpacking. So does that make running whilst you're traveling quite difficult because you'd have to carry like extra clothes or do extra laundry and all that sort of stuff? Uh, It's mainly the laundry. It's not like I'm carrying running shoes, is it? Oh, fair point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I do take, and I did, obviously, when I went to Ireland, I took the, because I started in Belfast and went down into the Republic. So I took my minimalist running shoes with me. But they're really, I mean, I could roll them up and stick them in my pocket, to be fair. They're Mm. not exactly difficult to um, carry. And I don't, I mean, the thing with running is you don't need any specialist other equipment. So you can just run in like a T-shirt. So I'm always carrying Mm. T-shirts. All it means is that I've got probably to do more washing. And if I'm doing something like park run, then it means that I'm kind of blocking out a Saturday morning where I could be doing other things. Mm. The main reason why I don't do much running when I'm traveling is because I'm busy doing other things. I'm just exploring. To be fair, when I travel, I walk a lot. So I'm already getting a lot of my fitness sorted. So it's not like Mm. I need to run, but generally it's because my days are quite busy. So I don't really have the opportunity to do a specialist run. Mm. So when you're doing like long walks on your holidays or running, things like that, do you have to be more mindful of things like your altitude, temperatures? Like how do you plan your route and stuff like that to stop yourself from getting lost? Because I know you don't carry your phone with you. Nope. You're a naked runner. I heard that's what that's called, by the way. I really don't want to imagine naked running. (laughs) You're a naked runner because you don't time yourself or look at your speed or your distance or anything like that, do you? Um, Not really. I do look at distance because I'm always curious to know how far I've gone. And I look at time, but only to like the nearest few seconds. I don't time myself exactly. I just go, oh, it's about 28 minutes, that sort of thing. And what I generally do is compare it to a parkrun pace. But I don't, I'm not, I mean, I don't have Strava. I don't have a Garmin. Mm. I don't have a Fitbit. I don't have anything like that. So I I don't plot it to the nth degree, which is really weird because I'm a data analyst and you thought that's what, what I would have done. Yeah. Well, I would have thought that you would plan a lot, especially if you are in a country that you don't know very well, just so that you don't get lost. I, I would be anxious about getting lost. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can read maps. Um, with regards to... I don't believe you carry a map with you when you're running either. No, I don't. Don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> I, plot it, I plot it beforehand and remember and then get halfway along and go, oh, should I have turned right there? Um, but <laughs> I generally only have to do something once before I know where I'm going. So that helps. Uh, altitude's an interesting question. I found out a little while ago that while the human body's ideal altitude is just under 150 meters, which isn't that high, issues with altitude only tend to kick in above about 1,500 meters. Uh, Most people are fine up to 3,000. 1,500 meters is higher than the highest point of the UK. So certainly for home running, I've got no issues. The majority of problems up to 4,000 meters are generally caused because people ascend too quick rather than the actual altitude itself. You are a fast runner. I'm not, I'm not a fast runner at 3,500 metres, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I was going to say, and you're good at hills, I've been told. <laughs> I, I don't generally go that high. Um, most of my travels tend to be to like coastal or low-altitude places. I've only been above 3,000 metres twice in my entire life, and both times I could definitely feel it and didn't do much more than casual slow walking. I did mm. some hiking in China and in Kyrgyzstan, and I can tell you that I could definitely sense that each step was, you know, a bit more difficult than it was back home. And I wouldn't have ever considered doing a run, but I wasn't there for running. So that's fine. I was there for hiking and just Mm -hmm. exploring the place. So my main issue, I guess, with traveling and running and traveling with any exercise is temperature or at least weather, because I tend to go to places that are hotter than the UK, not because I like them, more because most places are hotter than the UK. Fair. <laughs> and whether it's hot and dry like Burkina Faso or hot and damp like Malaysia, 
still rather not running like 35 degree heat. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to get to back to my accommodation looking and sounding like some kind of dying pig, especially if I'm because I travel quite budget mindedly. The showers in those accommodations might not necessarily be um, fully directional. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> also remember that I often go to places where the water supply isn't necessarily potable. So mm. it's not just a case of cleanliness. It's not just a case of refreshing. It's also rehydration. And I don't mm. want to be carrying a plastic water bottle on my runs. Um, mm. Certainly, because that I, I don't like carrying anything on my run. So having to carry a water bottle would be just awkward. Yeah. When I flirted with running a few years ago, I had one of those little ones that you have on your wrist and you can just sort of suck on it while you're running and it gives you some water. But it was awkward, to be honest. And yeah. Constricting. Yeah. I yeah. could understand why you might not like it. Because like, I used to find that um, what started off as comfortable at the beginning of the run would be too tight by the end of the run. I don't yeah. know like why your hands might swell up while you're running but there you go maybe i'm allergic to cardio that would make <laughs> a lot of sense <laughs> yes so uh, you are very much not allergic to cardio you like to do hiking long distance hiking you do running i know you very much don't like any sports that are on or around water but do you do any other kinds of sports apart from running and walking uh, no I mean, the main issue that I've got with sports is that I'm just not very good at any of them, mainly, obviously, because of dyspraxia, but with mm. a side of, you know, a lack of upper body strength and bad eyesight. But mainly, mainly it's a lack of coordination and I just can't judge distances very well. So most sports are pretty much off my radar. Basically, any sport that requires you know control of an external object or passing to someone uh, is not a sport I'd be any good at. And that's why I ended up doing running in the first place. Because when I was at school, I ended up doing cross-country running as a discipline because my sport's main winter sports, my sport's main winter sports, my school's main winter sports were rugby union and field hockey. So rugby union's obviously very a physical game. I'm not very good with physical contact because I'm built like a telegraph pole. Field hockey requires coordination and vision in an artistic strategic sense. And I don't have that either. In summer, I stuck to, you know, running around the athletics track because our summer sport was cricket. You can imagine how I was at cricket. I feel yeah. like I have to interrupt you at this point and say you don't have to be good at a sport to enjoy a sport. I'm terrible at pole and I really enjoy it. There's a difference between enjoying a sport, even though you're not good at it, and the feeling that you there is actually no point in you doing it. One of the aspects to a lot of these games is, of course, because they're team sports, they're... So, for example, field hockey, you're on the pitch, but that doesn't mean you've got the ball. Mm. So if you're really, really bad at a sport, the chances are no one's going to pass the ball to you. If you're really, really bad at cricket, the chances are you won't be asked to bowl and you probably won't be asked to bat. So all you're doing there is sitting in the field somewhere far out picking daisies. Fair. But you love picking daisies. <laughs> I mean, I can think of better things to do on a Wednesday afternoon. But, <laughs> but, yeah, but are there no other solo sports that you like? Well, I mean, this is another problem. So remember my have an inability to, you know, control an object. So this rules out most of athletics because, to be fair, do you really want me to be anywhere near me while I'm holding a javelin? And I was all... just thinking even directly behind you wouldn't be entirely safe with that one. <laughs> to be fair, no, I, yeah, yeah the, the safest place to be when I'm holding a javelin is either not on the pitch at all or probably in the over county. the way. Yeah, yeah, either in a different county or at least over 10 metres away. It doesn't matter which direction, just as long as you're over 10 metres. <laughs> it also rules out anything requires jumping. So long jump and high jump, hurdling, mm. that sort of thing. I did once do a 3,000 metre steeplechase in an school competition and came third out of five. The only reason why I came third out of five was because only five people were foolish enough to give it a try. And three of them got lapped. And I lapped someone else. So oh, okay. there, was, there was a point in time coming up to 
the winner's last lap where there were three of us in line on three different laps because, you know, I was pretty bad at steeplechase, but I was good at running. So I was basically sprinting between the hurdles, stopping and stepping over them. And I still managed to <laughs> I like that technique. <laughs> yes. But the fact there are only five people doing it shows just how niche that was. Um, <laughs> what else have we got? Basketball. Oh, yeah, we dabbled with basketball when I was at school, but I can't jump. Um, my steeplechase hurdle is actually my high jump record. I grew up in Liverpool. You'd expect me to have a grounding in, you know, soccer, association football. And we played a lot at break time at primary and secondary school. I wasn't the first pick in any of the games, obviously. I was surprisingly good at rounders at primary school, but that might have been just because everybody else kind of wasn't. Well, so no, you know, I was good at rounders too. That's a weird coincidence. Eh. It's just the only sport that I was good at at school. <laughs> And then they stop it in year four. Like, why? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. What was the question? I can't remember the question. <laughs> I was asking if you do any other sports apart from running and hiking. Um, I, I guess no, then. Um, I mean, I don't even like running. No, that's not true. <laughs> you do a lot of it for someone that doesn't like it. <laughs> I don't like athletics. So there are many advantages with running along an athletics track. One of them, of course, is it's an athletics track, so therefore it's flat. Um, and another advantage for me would be I could do it barefoot. However, athletics, very boring. I don't like the Olympics. I don't like watching the Olympics. I don't like things like that because the thing about running is it's fine when you're doing it. I have this thing with marathon as well. I never watch things like the London Marathon on television because it's great when you're doing it. Watching people do it, boring as hell. Well, you've messed up my next question really good there, because I was about to ask you, do you prefer to watch sports? Well, I mean, I prefer to watch sports, but I don't prefer to watch running because, you know, watching people run yeah. 25 times around a 400 metres flat athletic track in the same place is not my idea of a good time. It's the same with basketball. That. I feel like that about car racing too. Yes. Car, racing is, car racing is actually the same. Um, there are some there are some types of motorsport that I kind of like, but that's because of the vehicles involved. I'm not. Mm -hmm. I, I have a passing interest in Formula One motor racing, but it's not my ideal. It's not my preferred form of motorsport. Um, stock car racing. That's quite cool. Motocross. That's also quite cool because things happen in motocross. It's not a circle. It's a it's a. <laughs> It's, it's a varying track with, with leaps in it. Um, and it's the same with athletics, the same with, with running. I, I don't watch it, but if I were to watch it, I'd probably find more interest in cross, watching cross-country running than in watching athletics or that sort of thing. Um, marathon running, marathon watch, watching a marathon is probably good simply just to see different parts of a city. There's, that, there's a tale that my ex-French mm. fiancé told me that a lot of people in France watch the Tour de France, not because they like cycling, but just because they want to see bits of France. Well, I was going to ask you if you've ever travelled specifically to watch sports. Like, have you ever gone to see the Tour de France or anything like that? I'm not the Tour de France, no. I mean, I do watch sports. I, I mean, I grew up, because obviously, as I say, I grew up in Liverpool. So football is a religion. And my uncle mm -hmm. was on the blue side. So I, I saw... I saw Everton Football Club play a few times. Uh, some of them were dreadful, obviously. Uh, I have a vague interest. I, I, I've watched like sort of non-league football because it's quite fun to see people who are marginally better than you kick a ball around in the mud. Actually, the but, only football game that I've ever enjoyed watching was one played by someone like Nunny and Burrow or something yeah. like that. That yeah. I, I thought they were good because they wanted it more. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, yeah, very much so. So I've, I've seen, have I ever seen Bedford Town play? I may have seen Bedford Town play because I used to watch Hales Owen Town and I think at one point they were in the same division. So I may have even seen Bedford Town play. But yeah, no, so I... I, I said, hmm, so knowledgeably then, like I even have heard of these teams. Sure. Yeah, I agree. You've heard of Bedford? Yes, I have heard of Bedford. There we go. That's why I mentioned them. <laughs> because they are the team in Bedford. So there we go. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll listen to sport on the radio. I'll listen to a lot of sport on the radio, just 
because it's background noise as well. I have mm. developed a liking for certain sports. There's not many I'd actually, you know, turn off, although tennis is a very strange sport to listen to on the radio. I mean, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, <laughs> one, one of my formative childhood memories is my granddad watching snooker on TV. Oh, yes. On his, on his black and white TV. <laughs> 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 what's that there's that old famous bit of commentary from snooker it's like for those of watching in black and white the blue ball is next to the pink ball or something like that <laughs> um yeah uh snooker's I was just amazed that he knew from the score <laughs> which color ball it was that blew my mind as a child this is magic <laughs> the thing is when, when you're really good at a sport like snooker the the table stays roughly in the right place so even if all the balls look the same on your television, you know from where they are on the table what colour mm. they're likely to be. Yeah. So it, it kind of helps. Snookers, I mean, I've watched snooker on, on television. There aren't many sports I've seen live. Uh, ice hockey. I used to live with a lady who helped out at Coventry Blaze Ice Hockey back in the mid-2000s. And so mm. I saw quite a, quite a lot of um, ice hockey matches. And rugby league as well, the better form of rugby. Um, I, I, I don't I know the difference, I'm afraid to say. Rugby union is 15 men or women holding a ball, looking at each other and going, there's a like a 20-stone a person in front of me, I'm going to pass it. <laughs> rugby, league, rugby league is fewer people, bigger bodies, and the thought of, there's a 20-stone person in front of me, I'm going to run straight at him and see what happens. <laughs> it's more of a sport. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes sense if somebody had explained it to me like that before I might have actually got into it. <laughs> Rugby union is a, is more of a sport that it looks Which one's nicer. the Posh Boys one? Pardon? Which one's the one the Posh Boys play? Oh, that's Rugby Union. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. R Rugby League is the northern professional game and... It basically involves people running into each other. It's great fun. I've seen the Rugby League World Cup final when it was held in Manchester in 2013. That sounds pretty cool. Was it? What was that like for you as like somebody who is socially anxious? Because I'd imagine there's a massive crowd or something like that. I mean, it's a massive stadium, so it doesn't... I mean, obviously, Rugby League is less popular than, say, football. Well, possibly not up north. Um, mm. But, no, it was... I don't have... I have more, my social anxiety kicks in more when I have to speak to people. Yeah, yeah. So you can sort of lose yourself a bit in a crowd because yeah. you don't have any sort of expectations of you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's more or less it. That's what I've done in the UK anyway. I've been abroad to watch stuff. Um, you want me yeah. to talk about that? Yes, please. Fabulous. So some of this is a bit niche. I've, I mean, remember, I've never travelled specifically for sport. I've never travelled specifically to watch a sporting event. So, I mean, I know a few people on Twitter who are, and they'll, like, go to, you know, every Northern Ireland football match and things like that. Mm. But with me, it's more a case of I've been in a place, and you know, while I've been there, I've decided to go see some sport. Sometimes yeah. I do factor it into my planning. I was on an interrail trip in autumn 2019, and I was always going to visit Liechtenstein. But I specifically visited Liechtenstein on the day that I did so that I could watch a football match. I was always going, I, you know, I always had this desire to watch an international football match between two countries that were never going to win anything. So I, I never wanted to watch like underdog versus underdog is what you're going yeah. for. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> So I, I never wanted to watch England play a game. I never really wanted to watch Scotland play a game. Well, possibly now, because Scotland are. Really <laughs> Why are you trying to get every, everyone to hate you in this space? <laughs> <laughs> Scottish football fans are actually a really good breed of people because um, <laughs> they're realistic to the point of being, you know, disparaging towards their own team. <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> uh, anyway, so... It was during qualifying for one of the international tournaments. And I realised that Liechtenstein were going to play Armenia. And I figured, 
that's probably what I want to see. Yeah, yeah, that sounds perfect for what you were looking for. There were 2,400 people in the stadium. I have Muslim. no idea. If that, that's not a lot, right? <laughs> if you're going to go to a Premier League football match, so watching the likes of Arsenal or Manchester United, depending on the stadium, you'll have a stadium full of, you know, upwards of 70,000. Oh, Having 2,400 people to watch an international football match. That's so it's like a, a big park run. <laughs> that's low tier. That, that, the, the most number of people I've ever known to be at a park run was, uh, I think, 1,300. So <laughs> two park runs. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, we're dealing with two teams that are sort of, if, if you consider that there are, uh, I, I don't know how many, Team, I don't know how many countries are in FIFA, but I think it's about 190. So if you consider that these are two countries whose FIFA rankings would be probably in three digits, we're not dealing with terribly good teams here. Yeah. Um, also, <laughs> it was one all. Also, with regard to... So underdog versus underdog ended up with everyone losing. I love it. Or everyone much. winning, depending on who's <laughs> making the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, to give you some idea of the audience, as I say, there were 2,400 people there. The stadium was about a third full. <laughs> so that tells you all you need to know. Uh, I have that, that may or may not be the, the lowest ranking football match I've ever seen, but I did see two football matches in the Maltese Premier League when I was in Malta about six years ago because I had a day to spare and I thought I might as well. Uh, that was weird um, because you had to, you had to, they only have about three stadia in Malta. So they have really? like eight teams or 10 teams. So they play two football matches back to back. So you end up with segregated crowds because the home and the way fans are separated. But the two matches obviously have two sets of home fans and they're not segregated, nor are the two sets of away fans. It's really, really bizarre. So you you end up mixing with different football fans from different teams that aren't playing each other. It's it's very yeah. Odd. I wonder I wonder if that um sort of changes the atmosphere in the crowd and stuff a little bit. I mean, possibly if you can say that the Maltese Premier League has atmosphere, because again, yeah. <laughs> the crowd isn't particularly big in those matches. Have you been um, to all of the stadia in Malta? I've been to one of them, which is I think a third of them. I was going to say, you're going to Malta again soon, aren't you? Yeah, you I am going to Malta again soon. your mission. <laughs> we'll see. Um, see, I don't, see I, if you can make, go and see an even worse sports ball game. I, I could possibly do that. Um, I would like to point out that uh, I don't always see the really low-key ones. Mm. I, I, I have been to a football match in Rome between the two major teams there, Roma and Lazio. It was an incredibly rammed stadium, incredible atmosphere, or at least it was for the first half. I was in the end with the Lazio supporters. They lost 5-1, and after an hour, I had the road pretty much to myself. It's also the only time I've ever been sprayed with tear gas. What, just for being a fan of a rubbish team? Just for being in a stadium in an Italian football match, yes. Because, oh well, we're dealing with a group of supporters here. I think, I think it was Milan who once their fans took in a scooter in parts, so they sort of had bits of it stuck down their pockets of their coats and things like that. When in the stadium, they rebuilt the scooter. By scooter, do you mean like a children's, or or like a motorized? My understanding is that it was a motorized one. But okay. a small one, yeah. Because otherwise, what they did next wouldn't have the same effect. Right. They rebuilt the scooter. They set fire to the scooter, and then they threw it onto the pitch. Oh my gosh! <laughs> They're a strange lot over there, and very passionate. Imagine so, though, if you were in that audience that you were in. And you left, and then your team turned it around from 5 0 <laughs> and won the game. You gutted, you left, wouldn't you? My, my uncle always used to say that. He's, he always used to deride people that left the game before the, before the end, just no matter how bad it was, because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Usually, because he was an Everton supporter, he was always disappointed, but he still <laughs> did it. 
Well, you um, never know, you might miss a streaker. Do you still get streakers nowadays or did that die out in the 90s? I don't know. It's much harder to get onto a pitch these days. So, yes, it probably died out. Also, when you're watching sort of non-league matches, you could probably be a streaker, but you'd probably die of exposure first. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I never really understood why people did that. I, I feel like because something has been lost by that dying out somehow. <laughs> you do it because you can. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have travelled for, 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 for sports balls that aren't football. Um, oh, yeah. I, I went to Australia and watched an Australian rules match. What's that? Australian rules football is, I'm going to alienate people here, it's the game rugby should be. Right. It's, oh God. <laughs> it's similar to Gaelic football, but with less violence. Um, I don't so, know yeah, what Gaelic football is either. So explain this to me like I'm five. Australian rules football is played on a cricket pitch between two teams who have an oval-shaped ball, and the idea is to kick the ball into the opponent's goal or over the top of it. Right. And you do it by either kicking the ball or by throwing the ball. It's great fun and there seem to be no rules. I've also seen ice hockey in Canada, the USA mm. and the Czech Republic on my trips. I also went to the World Ice Hockey Championships in Belarus because I was always going to go to Belarus anyway. And because the World Ice Hockey Championships were on, if I had a ticket to the game, I got I got visa free entry. Oh, that's interesting. Because it's, you know, it's quite difficult to get a visa in some of those areas, isn't it? Belarus is it's it it was often touted as the last dictatorship in Europe. It's still it's one of those places that still thinks it's 1985, mm. and as a result, it's very Soviet, and it it it's hard to get in. It's hard to get a visa for mm. normal purposes. But they had the World Ice Hockey Championships. I got a visa. It was on the route. I went to a couple of the matches. So that Did was you cool. get to see any of Belarus as well, or were you just able to see stadiums and then go home? I spent about four days there. I spent about oh, four days cool. in Minsk. Uh, I did a podcast on it actually. Uh, it was part of my. It was part of my journey from Romania to Lithuania via Ukraine and Belarus and Moldova and Transnistria. Oh, interesting. You should probably link that blog post under this spaces tweet so that if people are interested, they can find it. Yeah. The best sport I've seen traveling, though, is a little bit niche. All right. It's Buzzcashy. Is what? Buzzcashy. What is that? Is this a ball game? This, this sounds like a drinking game. <laughs> it is neither a ball game or a drinking game. Right. It's one of the sports played in the Nomad Games in Central Asia. I was there during the Independence Day celebrations in Kyrgyzstan. Have you ever watched polo? I don't mean water polo. I mean actual polo. I don't think so. It's a bit you like know, hockey, though, right? Kind yeah. of. You know, you, know what's, you know what's special about polo? No. Polo's the one that they play on horses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course it is. Posh people game. So polo is a game like hockey played on horses where you hit a ball with a stick as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Buzzkashi is a bit like that, except that it's no sticks and it's not a ball. So in fact, nothing like that then. <laughs> kind of the same principle in the sense you're riding on a horse and you've got to get an object into the opponent's goal area. Well, what's the object if it isn't a ball? It's a dead goat. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> How silly of me to not realise that. <laughs> to be specific, it's actually usually a dead calf um, with bits Can chopped I off. Can I request a block of tofu for <laughs> if I'm playing? <laughs> it, 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 it's, usually a, it's usually a calf with bits chopped off because apparently they have greater structural integrity. Um hmm. Oh, of course, the last thing you want when you're throwing your dead animals about is, you know, bits <laughs> going everywhere. Well, of course there is. Otherwise, you'd need a new one. You don't want you don't want your you don't want your um your ball to fall off halfway. Well, through. like if it if it falls into two parts, then which bits do we keep playing with? It's the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to say, watching it, I did not quite understand the rules. 
And there seemed to be a large number of times when play stopped for refereeing decision reasons. But it was... So, so hang on. So you're on a horse with a load yeah. of other dudes that are on horses. It's a team sport. Yes. And you're lobbing about a dead goat. Yeah. Like, like a whole goat. If memory serves, it's a goat with its head chopped off. And there may be a couple of legs missing. But it's basically a Aww. goat carcass, yes. So that seems like a waste of good food to me. <laughs> like if you're gonna if you're gonna go around killing goats, at least eat them. What are you doing? I mean, they do eat goats as well. Um, yes. And so, what, yeah, you've got to chuck it into like a goal or like a basketball hoop or the best. The, whether this is, I, I've only ever seen one game of this, but what they had was. They were a bit like raised pits. So you'd have the the surface area, which was kind of like rough ground, a bit gravelly. So you'd be riding over the rough ground. And then at either end, but not quite at the end, there was kind of like a ray, small raised area and it, a circular. And in the top of that small raised area, there was a smaller dip. And the impression seemed to be that you needed to take the goat and put it into the dip of that raised area while everybody else was trying to stop you. Bearing in mind that you're you're not hitting the goat with a stick, you're carrying it yeah. as well. So yeah. I mean, living inside the goat for a second, just because <laughs> it must be quite difficult um to be able to like steer a horse and catch a thing and throw a thing and all that sort of business all at once, not crash into other horses and stuff. And yeah. yeah. No, that's that that that's the original idea because yeah. the nomad games are very much these are traditional sports and pastimes that we play to improve our horse riding skills to make us mm. better hunters and to make us better fighters. So I feel like this whole thing makes horse, more sense if you yeah. then the winner gets to eat the goat. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to eat that goat. But yeah, yeah. But I, I, I feel like a synthetic goat would work for this. <laughs> wouldn't have the same. I mean, they, they tried putting synthetic football fields down for, for English football and they got taken up after about six years because they weren't the same. Yeah, but we so, don't love about pig's bladders anymore, though, do we? Well, no, which is just as well, because you've got whole manner of people who are now getting mm. proof that they've got head injuries and dementia from heading a ball that was heavier than lead. Because it yeah. was so yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, people people stop bumping your noggin. You need what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually my last sports related question, unless you have anything else about sports and travel that you feel like we have missed. I don't think so. I'm looking back at the questions. Um I feel like don't bump your noggin is a pretty good Final thought of the thing. <laughs> don't don't bump your noggin is yeah, that's that's pretty universal in it. <laughs> yes, very much so. So on that note then, I shall let people know that if they want to follow along with your adventures, you are literally all over the internet now. You're on the YouTube, you're on the Instagram, you're all over Twitter, you've got a newsletter, blog posts going on, all that business. And so hang on, hang on, hang on. Can, 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 can I observation? The YouTube. I'm sorry. I'm are, sorry. You, are you 60? No, the thing, what has happened there is, right, I started doing that because it annoyed my teenage children and now I can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> it has become an involuntary verbal tick now. <laughs> it's awful and I keep forgetting that other people can hear me <laughs> can't take you anywhere I could be 60 and just have a really good skincare regime you don't know <laughs> I like this whole concept that um, I'm 10 years older than you and the gap <laughs> is reducing <laughs> well see the thing is I think I've now reached the age where I want to start lying about my age but I don't understand why people usually lie and say that they're younger. I'm going to start lying and saying that I'm older. So people think I look really, really good for my age. I don't want to be like, oh, I'm 25. And then they look at me like, oh, my God, what happened? I want to say I'm 55 <laughs> and then to go, wow, you look amazing. <laughs> yes. 
I, I, I say that I'm 47, but everybody else that I know of who is 47 looks older than me. <laughs> well, see, this is why I can't judge people's ages, because I pretty much think everyone looks older than me. And then I catch a reflection in the mirror and I'm like, oh, yeah, look, she looks much older than me. And then it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, yeah, so you are active in all these places and you're much cooler about it all than I am. And so mm -hmm. I was going to say that the best place probably to find out where to follow along with all your adventures is the link in your bio, which leads to your link tree that has yeah. a link to everywhere. Sign up to the newsletter and get it all as a digest once a month. Or you can go f dig through the archives of the blog and read about everything from asexuality and kink to, I don't know, where did you last go? <laughs> Can't remember where you last went. Czech Republic to drink beer. Oh, yes. Yes, you went to a beer spa, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes. And and bathed in beer, except not Bathed in beer. It was great fun. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's a link to everywhere, your Instagram and everything in your Twitter bio. And there I was going to say when we were going to, like, what we're going to talk about on our next spaces and stuff, but we don't quite know what we're doing about spaces right now, do we? We do not. We do not. I, I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what subject we're doing. I don't know how we're doing it. And I don't know when we're doing it. I've got an idea of what subject we're doing, if that helps. Mm, please tell. We're, we are theoretically discussing backpacking like a 20-something when you are most definitely not a 20-something. Okay. It's, like I planned, it's almost like I planned to come into that with my wrinkle talk a second ago. <laughs> I mean, that follows on from this subject, obviously. I mean, this is this is the one that we were like, eh, maybe this one doesn't follow on as seamlessly. But there we go. That was that was the one that we are theoretically talking about next. But whether we're going to be doing that here or YouTube or somewhere else, I'm not sure. We will play around. And we will let Twitter know. Yes. One way or the other. And people can catch up on barefoot-backpacker.com. Yes. And and as you say, I am on YouTube. Um, yes, and that is very exciting. You're going to have some new content up there in the next couple of days as well. Excellent. And that, again, is youtube.com forward slash at RTW Barefoot because YouTube are weird. Well, the only reason it's RTW Barefoot in the first place was because Twitter has a character limit on Twitter handles. Yes. And YouTube, um, I, I changed it to RTW Barefoot so it'd be the same. <laughs> yes. Because you were something totally different. That's because I've had my YouTube longer than I've had my Barefoot Backpacker identity. Yes. Um, but you've only just started really using your YouTube recently and... You've been enjoying that, right? Yes, you have. And there has been. <laughs> I haven't been that mean to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've got quite a lot of barefoot stuff on there as well already, haven't you? Barefoot ASMR stuff, walking in frost and stuff. So you've got actual visual proof to anybody listening that you do indeed barefoot in all sorts of conditions. Uh, yes. Um, I also have just posted a image to my Instagram feed of that very nature about parkrun ah. so there is now a picture of me in a skirt and a crop top and bare feet in front of a parkrun logo i mean that is quite niche but <laughs> there we go <laughs> it also wasn't taken this week i was gonna say that's a very you collection of words <laughs> sounds like a very you image um the design of the crop top actually the design of the skirt as well but you can't see it because it's on the inside uh, are both exactly oh, what you might imagine i was gonna say is that your barefoot print one it is the barefoot print one that is super you and very cute i, I have that and then alternatively i have leggings and a crop top that are daisies so also on brand yes barefoot daisies all round yes on that hippie-ish note i sure i'm not a hippie I, I shall say goodbye to you um, and we will reconvene somewhere and do this again. Yay. Yay. I'm so glad that we finally managed to do this one. <laughs> I mean, I've, yeah, I mean, I've, I could have done it any time, really. Well, I couldn't yeah. think because I, I hadn't done the questions. So, yes. This, this has just been the cursed one because every time one of us has been ready to do it, the other one's been like, ah, oh, but not this week. <laughs> yes. But we shall have to get more regular with it once we have found a more permanent home for it because this platform doesn't feel stable anymore. My, my, my major problem with Twitter Spaces is not actually that. My major problem with Twitter Spaces is and always has been. It's not actually that great a medium because I have to do it on my phone. 
Yeah, it's annoying that you have to use the phone because the sound quality then isn't as good as it could be. No. But there we are. We work with what we work with and we will twiddle about and find a new format at some point. Yay. Right. I shall speak to you soon then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.